It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. Um, a few weeks ago, a memorial service was held for Dr. Tim Keller, a best-selling Christian author and a well-known minister and founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. In his retirement, though, he did increase his global influence, taking his intellectually rich theological teachings around the world. Now, as he was dying of pancreatic cancer, Keller himself planned his memorial, choosing the scripture and the hymns that the crowd would, you know, of more than 2,000 who assembled at St. Patrick's Cathedral would hear and sing. Um, and the thousands watching online, of course, would hear it as well. He also chose the people who would speak. So... Many people, and I was one of them, um, wondered why a man named Sam Albury was chosen to deliver the homily. Um, and so, as any curious person would do, I googled Sam and found out a lot about him. Albury is a pastor and author. He's written a lot for the ministry websites, The Gospel Coalition, founded by Keller, and Desiring God. It's founded by Dr. John Piper. His latest book, uh, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies, and other books include um, that he's written, Seven Myths About Singleness, and Is God Anti-Gay? And other questions about homosexuality, the Bible, and same-sex attraction. I think we got a theme here, Mr. Albury, and he joins me now. Welcome. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. It is a theme, and you know, I'm I'm very curious because I this is uh, I, before I get to the whole your books. I do want to address this because I remember in a Tim Keller sermon um, that he said that what someone says as their last sermon as their, as the, is very important. And he gave examples like Moses, the last thing that Moses said to the Israelites. And, of course, he talked about the last thing Jesus said to the apostles, you know, the Great Commission. So why did Dr. Tim Keller want you to give the homily for his memorial service, which would be kind of the final parting words um, that he really wanted people to know? Why? Well, I, I've, I don't normally question Tim's judgment, but I, I certainly was tempted to when he, when he asked me to to speak at that that service, um, he asked me back in January, I think it was, mm. um, and I I don't know. I can think of many people I think would have done a much better job than me. But what he did say was that he wanted it to be a sermon that was really aimed at people who weren't Christians. Um, Tim himself was was an evangelist, um, mm -hmm. although he did so much to to build up and teach. The faithful, his his heart was always reaching the people who weren't yet Christians, and he made it very clear to me that he wanted the sermon to be about to be about Jesus, not mm -hmm. about him, and for it to be aimed at those who would be listening who who would not call themselves Christians. And that's it. That's it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should add that he and I worked together on right various things over the years. So he, we. Right. Let's talk about that. How did you know Tim and how did you work with him? Well, I, I got to know Tim and Kathy back in 
late 2015, beginning of 2016. Um, I'd written my book, Is God Anti-Gay? Tim had written a very positive review for Redeemer. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote to his assistant just to say, please pass on my thanks. And um, the message came back, if you're ever in, in New York, come, <laughs> come see us. So I made sure I was in New York. Um, and Tim had me do a couple of things at Redeemer, some some of them for the staff team, some of them more for for training events and that kind of thing. Um, but I would often stay with, with Tim and Kathy when I was passing through New mm-hmm. York City. Um, they very kindly gave me a key to their apartment, which I Wow, I'm have. really impressed now. <laughs> the key um, to the apartment. So, uh, yeah, I've been a family friend mm-hmm. uh, ever since that time and would, would join them on some of their trips to the UK and that kind of thing. Um, so... From that point of view, Tim Tim knew me well. He knew my mm-hmm. preaching well. T- Tim and Kathy have often said that because the church in Britain has been so much smaller mm-hmm. and Britain has been so much more secular that, that a lot of British pastors are, are more practiced at speaking to a, to a non-Christian audience. Yeah. Um, so that may have been part of it as well. And I think the combination of me being a, a close family friend and also being used to speaking in in non-Christian contexts, I I suspect that was why he asked me. Well, you have a unique ministry. um, And I mean, we've not really gotten to the real foundation here because because I do believe that this is one of the issues. If if it's not the issue, it is certainly one of the largest issues the world is dealing with, which is gender identity. Gender, and what does it mean Um, sexuality, what does that mean? And you have a unique life background that lends itself well to what's going on today. So tell me about your background. Yes, I mean, there are, I think, two parts to my background that that make this pertinent for me. One is I'm, I'm a pastor and I have been for the past 20 years. And so I've got my eye on the various questions people have, the burdens people have, the things people are confused by, um, unsure of. Um, and the second thing is uh, is my own experience, particularly dealing with issues of sexuality. Um, since I was a teenager, I've been attracted to men and not attracted to women. Um, so then as a Christian, needing to think that through very carefully and think, well, what does that mean for my for my faith, for my discipleship? What does it mean to, to follow Jesus in this part of life? Um, and those two things together then have have really given me an opportunity to try to to help churches especially be be places where there's there's grace and truth around these topics where trying to help Christians understand what the Bible says, how to communicate what the Bible says to a world that is in a very different place um, mm-hmm. and to help churches care well for people who might be wrestling with these things personally um. One of the things you said in a speech to other Anglicans was that, you know, you were you were bullied for being gay in school when you were young, right? And then you said, now you're being bullied by the Synod for li- living according to the message and the teaching of Jesus. Kind of explain that. Yeah, well, this this shows just how, how much culture has changed because I was first be- becoming aware of my own sexuality in the early 90s, and that was such a different context to to the world today Mm -hmm. Uh, these things were not spoken about or if they were they were only spoken about in a in a very derogatory fashion as i 
found out myself. Um, and yet, fast forward 30 years, and increasingly, it, it's people who are speaking from a very different perspective to the culture today, who were sidelined and maligned. Um, and it's interesting, as, as someone who has experience of, of this in my own life, and yet being a, a Bible-believing Christian, being single, mm -hmm. um, some of the things being said to me by more progressive members of our Anglican Synod were very similar to the things the non-Christian culture was saying to gay people back in the early 90s. It's, you know, you're deluded, you're psychologically unwell, your voice doesn't count, um, we don't need to hear you, you're just repressed and something's gone horribly wrong with you. So the, the parallels are, were telling, I think, and I, I wanted to use that language because one of the things the Synod professes to care about is is the whole issue of harm and not wanting people to experience harm. And mm -hmm. so I wanted to say, well, actually, your rhetoric on this to those of us who are seeking to walk faithfully with Jesus is harmful. Yeah. Um, so there's a, yeah, I thought that challenge needed to be made. One of the things you talked, you gave it um, almost a decade ago, um, really addressed four questions that you really get asked all the time. And I don't think those questions have changed much in, you know, the near decade. And they are, did Jesus even mention homosexuality? Can't we just agree to disagree? Um, number three is, if same-sex partners are are faithful, isn't it good? Isn't it still all right? Um, um, and I, obviously that addresses the whole Sodom and Gomorrah issue of they were, you know, being violent um, in their aggression and their sexual aggression. And number four, isn't the church's stance on, on same-sex attraction deeply harmful? I think the most important one, of course, you've addressed as number one, is did Jesus even mention homosexuality? I think this has been a question people say because they don't hear Jesus in the scriptures, they don't read something in the scriptures and the gospels which is where we get his words and the, you know the book of acts did jesus actually address the issue of homosexuality what's the answer yeah the answer is he didn't he didn't mention it by name uh so he didn't reference that word he didn't address that topic explicitly mm -hmm. and so the implication people have made from that is if jesus didn't mention it he was fine with it and therefore the church should be fine with it mm -hmm. But though Jesus didn't name it, he did speak in broad brushstrokes about sexual ethics and God's design for human sexuality. And he, he made it very clear that sex outside marriage is sinful and that marriage is between a man and a woman. So although he doesn't mention homosexuality itself, he says enough things about God's design for marriage and sexual intimacy for us to know by implication what he would have thought about it. Um, Jesus obviously was was speaking into a first century Jewish context, and and these things were not being contested. Um, no one was pushing for same sex relationships. It was never something he had to push back against. Right. They were having different thoughts about divorce and remarriage, so he did speak into that. But that's that's why it's it's only in the later New Testament, as the gospel is reaching a Greco-Roman context, that you have explicit references to homosexuality. Well, one of your books, though, is is very interesting, and I have not had a chance to read it. I'm sorry, very sorry, but it says, Is God Anti-Gay? So how do you answer that in that book? And um, obviously, you know, we don't have, you know, five hours to, you know, to go through all the details. But, I mean, that's really 
the crux of the issue. What people are asking, well, is God anti-gay? I mean, how can how can God not love me if this is what I, this is how I was made? Yeah, it is such a big question. Um, the short answer is that if there's if there's no hope for our gay friends, there's no hope for anyone, because the same. Jesus diagnoses all of us as having the same ultimate heart condition of, of turning away from God in our hearts. Jesus puts all of us in the same boat. Jesus says all of us are broken in our sexuality. And that our only hope for any of us is, is in what he came to do in his death and resurrection. So in that sense, whether someone is gay or straight, to use our language today, is immaterial to to their place before God, because we know that all of us have fallen short of of God's standards, and yet in his love, God has sent his son to die for us. So one of the things I say in the book is, is that as long as God is offering us life in Jesus Christ, he's not actually being against us. Um, he may not agree with things that we do, mm -hmm. but he could not be more loving if he is actually giving up his one and only son for us. So you're saying that in the context of how God looks on our sin, homosexuality is just one among many. It's not that it stands above all the other sins as the game breaker, you know, the you know the the one that just sort of breaks the camel's back. Kind of Absolutely, thing. yeah. Which is why, you know, pretty much every reference to homosexuality in the Bible. Um, puts it in the context of all kinds of other very different sins. Um, so Paul mentions it in places like 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 2, Romans chapter 1. And in each case, he's talking about a whole range and suite of different sins, of which this is but one example. So it's serious enough for him to mention, but it's not unique because he mentions it alongside things like drunkenness or slander or mm -hmm. other forms of sexual sin or greed. So it, it's not in a category of its own. But one thing that's different, though, in our culture, though, is how it's being affirmed in today. I mean, when you get drunk and fall down in a gutter, you kind of know that's wrong. You kind of know that that's not what your life should be about. You know, and I mean, Dr. Keller was saying, you know, when you ha when you commit adultery, you kind of know that's wrong. It's like you're saying, well, wait, you're not my wife. You know, I mean, this mm. is this is the kind of thing. I think that's the question, though, today is that it's not even even you saying that it's a sin among many is offensive to a lot of people. I mean, it really oh, is hugely. because yes. it's so affirmed. We have a pride parade. Um, you know, we have corporate sponsorships of the pride parade and that sort of thing. So this is a different kind of acceptance of, if you call it a sin, right? Mm. It is. And you're, you're exactly right. Um, and part of the reason for that is because our framework of how we determine whether something's right or wrong has has radically changed in the last 30 years mm -hmm. and today the sort of the primary factor as to whether we think something's morally right or wrong is whether we perceive it to to be hurting anyone mm -hmm. um if we don't think something is harming anyone we don't think it's wrong um previous generations would have would have also said that, but they would have added a whole load of other things as well as to what made something right or wrong. So because today, you know, it's very hard to say, well, if if two people have romantic feelings for each other, why shouldn't they, they express those feelings? How's that harming them? How's that harming anyone else? On that basis, it's very hard to say it's wrong. 
Um, but that that's more a reflection of our own kind of moral framework in this particular cultural moment. Um, as as a Christian, I I have a broader view of 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 morality, and it, it's not simply based on whether or not I can say something is harmful. It, it's based on whether something goes against what God has said for us, the, the one who made us, the one who created us. So it is very, very countercultural. I'm, I'm very conscious of that. Um, I'm I'm not looking for a fight with anyone, but um, as, as a Christian, I do want to try and explain why some of us have the convictions that we do. It's not through any ill feelings towards anyone else, um, mm-hmm. nor is it something I'm repressing within my own heart. Um, it, it's simply a reflection of the fact that part of what I, I receive from, from following Jesus is seeing his teaching, his rationale, his beliefs on what marriage is and what the right place is for sexual intimacy. And so I have a lot of friends who don't share my convictions, obviously. And, mm-hmm. um, um, <laughs> you know, some of them will be fairly direct and say, Sam, you just can't believe that today. And I'll say, I know, I know, I get it. But um, <laughs> but the fact is, you, I believe what I believe about these things because I believe what I believe about Jesus. And so if someone wants to change my mind on on the definition of marriage or on sexuality or same-sex relationships, they need to change my mind on Jesus first because he's why I have the convictions that I do. Um, I want to get to the second question before we take a little bit of a break. Can we tr- can we just agree to disagree? Um, I think that's a loaded question in itself, and I know the answer is really no because of just what how you know the culture is moving legally um, and um, sociologically. I mean, the sort of woke cancel culture, all of those things are happening. But biblically speaking, can't we just disagree to, to agree to disagree? Yeah, it, it would be much easier if we could, but um, I, don't, I don't think we can because I think the way the Bible handles this issue is with is it, showing that it, it actually there's too much at stake with it. Um, one of the things we see throughout the Bible is that it, it ties our understanding of marriage to our understanding of the gospel, because one of the big things in the Bible is that is that marriage is a signpost to the gospel. Um, a man and a woman becoming one is a is a picture of heaven and earth becoming one in Jesus. And so once you start changing the definition of marriage, you start changing by implication the, the gospel that marriage is meant to be a picture of. Um, so the, the Bible therefore treats these things very seriously. There are, there are other issues where we can say as Christians, well, we can have different perspectives on, on baptism or on denominational structures or mm-hmm. things like that. And it doesn't ultimately matter it matters enough to think it through and have a conversation but with with issues of sexuality that the bible treats it as being so much more consequential than that um our our very eternity is bound up with whether we repent of sins and and trust in jesus um so we can't just say well let let's let's all have our own views and and not and not worry about it it's it's too important for that um, we're going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast, talking with Sam Albury. We'll be right back. 
Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. And we're back with um, pastor and author Sam Albury. Um, He was the speaker who gave the homily at Dr. Tim Keller's um, memorial service. And uh, it's it's an interesting um, kind of introduction because I really hadn't known that much about him, even though um, I'm a big follower of Tim Keller. But we're talking about the church and homosexuality. And one of the things that you talked about was your same-sex attraction and that your singleness is part of the reason for um, your in your ministry. And what I wanted to know is how did you know that you had this same-sex attraction? Like what age? And a lot of people just say, oh, you're just gay and you haven't admitted you're gay. Um, but what age? When did you know? I probably, it, it took me a little while to figure it out. I'm a, I'm a slow person at the best of times. <laughs> and I was figuring this out in the early 90s and there was no cultural conversation to join in with to help. We didn't have any of the kind of concepts of sexual identity that we have now. So it was just me and my little head um, trying to to wrestle this stuff through. But I think it was probably when I was 17. um, I wasn't yet a Christian. And I remember thinking, and I literally, these words came to my head. I I remember thinking, I think I'm gay. And I remember thinking, yeah, I must be, because I have these strong, romantic, physical feelings for one or two of my male friends, and I I don't have those feelings for any of my female friends. Mm. Um, And at that point, not being a Christian, but it being the early 90s, I thought, well, I don't want anyone to know about this. It's too risky. Mm -hmm. But maybe when I get to university, then I can begin to explore this and and see where it leads. And I became a Christian before I got to university, so I never (laughs) really had the opportunity to to road test that. But, um, But out of my commitment to Christ, I've, I've never felt it was right to pursue those feelings or to act out on them. Um, and I've therefore remained unmarried. And I know I know other people who would would say they're same sex attracted who have married someone of the other sex. And, mm-hmm. pers- you know, there, there's a healthy way that can happen. There's lots of very unhealthy ways that can happen, obviously. So I'm not saying that everyone who has same sex attraction must therefore remain single. But but for me, marriage has never really seemed a realistic option, and so I've I've been single with 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 ups and downs, but but generally very gratefully single, very happily single. Well, your question number three um, about the questions you often get um, is, you know, if same sex partnerships are faithful and loving, why are they not accepted by the church? Yeah, again, it's a very obvious question for for people to ask because again if it's we we have our own moral framework today and and as well as something not being harmful we still think well as long as it's faithful it's good Mm -hmm. and faithfulness is a virtue Uh, it's a good thing to be faithful faithfulness is part of the the fruit of the spirit but just because someone can be faithful in something doesn't mean the thing they're being faithful in is is necessarily morally good Mm. Um, a very frivolous silly example is if if a if a gang of bank robbers are going around robbing banks all over the place you might see wonderful teamwork going on you might see commitment to one another you know covering each other's backs that kind of thing mm-hmm. 
But that doesn't make the moral enterprise itself morally good. Um, so the presence of a virtue in something doesn't mean that the relationship is is morally good. Um, and the fact that there is obviously many same-sex relationships where there is faithfulness, uh, where there are many virtues, doesn't itself mean that the relationship is is morally good. And the fourth one um, is about the church. If the church isn't what the church believes about homosexuality harmful to people who really want to be faithful Christians. Yeah, this this is the this is the question because the the thing I I hear the most often is aren't aren't Christians like you the reason gay teenagers are dealing with mental health issues? Mm -hmm. um, it's a huge question, hugely serious question, um, and it's one we we Christians need to to think through and give an answer to. And there obviously have been ways in which the church at times in different places has been harmful in things that Christians have said and done, things that we would say are actually unchristian for them to have said and done. Mm -hmm. So there are certainly ways the church has, has been harmful on this issue, but I don't think the teaching of the Bible itself is harmful on this issue. Um, one of the reasons it seems to be is because in our own cultural time, We've made sexual and romantic fulfillment the be all and end all of life. Mm -hmm. And so if that isn't going well, if you're not if you're not being given an opportunity for that, then your whole life is over. And my my real concern is that actually that is it's never been the message of the church that you have to be sexually fulfilled to be complete, but it is very much the air we breathe in our culture today. And it raises the stakes, I think dangerously high because it's saying to teenagers your sexuality your gender identity that is the most important thing about you and if that isn't going right if you're not feeling fulfilled in that then the best in life is passing you by and it, it's not hard to go from that to thinking that a life without sexual fulfillment a life without romantic fulfillment isn't a life worth living at all and so part of the, the message of Christianity is so liberating on this because Jesus is, is very clearly saying to us, that was never meant to be the thing that was going to make us complete. Mm -hmm. um, it's romantic fulfillment, sexual intimacy, those are good gifts from God when properly received and properly understood. But Jesus shows us that the, the one thing that can cause deepest satisfaction and fulfillment and wholeness is a relationship with him um, and not our sexuality. So we, we don't need to be romantically fulfilled to be whole and complete in our humanity. Um, that isn't to say we should, you know, the, the whole thing doesn't matter. It matters a lot. It's a, it's an amazing gift of God. So my, my response would be to say, I, th I actually think it's our secular culture that is doing harm here oh. because it, it's making this issue the be all and end all. And that's, that is so dangerous. You know, your latest book, I believe it's your latest book, What God Has to Say About Our Bodies. Is that is this your latest book? Uh, uh, well, I've, I've had a children's book come out since then. <laughs> okay. I've got a book coming out in about a month's time, but yes. Okay. So, well, this is the, the one that's on your website that's on the top of the pile. Mm. So, uh, But I thought it was an interesting... Uh, topic because there are a lot of people who, who are not aware that God has anything to say about our bodies. So, what is the crux of this? Uh, the synopsis of this book? 
Yeah, well, I was looking at lots of the issues that we're confused about culturally and often confused about in the church as well. Issues of gender, issues of identity, issues of body image, and realized that a common thread in all of those is, does our body have any intrinsic meaning or not? Mm -hmm. And so wanted to draw on some of the rich heritage that there is in, in the Christian tradition on these on these issues, the different ways people have thought about that in the past and looking at what the Bible says, and to try to show people that actually the, the gospel is good news for our bodies, because the gospel mm -hmm. reminds us that our bodies are not accidental, they're not incidental. Um, we have been created. God did mean to, to put us here. Um, he didn't merely assemble us. He he came up with the idea of us. And whilst our body isn't everything, it's not all that we are, it's not nothing either. Um, mm -hmm. And then particularly thinking about the, the message of, of Jesus and how, as, as Christians, our bodies belong to him. Um, Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. I want to go with your body. I've, I found that liberating because if if my body belongs to Jesus, then the only person my body really needs to please is Jesus, um, which which helps me worry less about whether my body fits in with cultural expectations and cultural standards of beauty and that and that kind of thing. And the body that is pleasing to Jesus is the body that is offered to Him. And then you add into that the the future physical hope that Jesus gives us. He claims to be the resurrection and the life to give us physical life beyond death. And so this life now is not the only bodily experience that we will have. From a biblical perspective, though, and this is a question that um, is out there a lot, um, do you believe that you were born with same-sex attraction or that the environment created your same-sex attraction? Yeah, it's it's a fascinating question. The, the short answer is I don't know. Mm. Um it feels very innate, mm -hmm. so perhaps it could have been something I was I was born with. Um, I think we're we're complex creatures, so I'm not sure we can always pin down something as as profound as as sexuality. Just to oh, it's because that happened when you were four, or this happened when you were mm -hmm. seven. Mm -hmm. um, either way, it doesn't affect the outcome of my my thinking about it because you know the teaching of of Jesus is that. We're all born with certain things that aren't right. That's uh, why he said we need to be born again. Um, so even if it was something I was born with, it, it doesn't make it morally automatically justifiable any more than, you know, if I could say I was I was born being irritable. It <laughs> um, doesn't justify my irritability. So I, I don't know in my case. I've had a very stable childhood and loving family, so... There wasn't a sort of a big obvious thing like that to, to pin it down to. What about the transgender movement? This has become the it thing now with controversy over whether or not there will be gender affirming care and that you born in the wrong body. You know, what is your what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's a huge issue. And um our, our hearts just go out to those who are, are feeling any kind of pain because of their sense of gender identity. I've, I've had friends who've, who've wrestled with their own sense of gender, and that can be a something that hangs over you for your whole life. It's, it's no small thing. Um, I do think the Christian faith gives us unique resources to, to think that through. Um, 
it's interesting in in the biblical account of of creation um god god doesn't make the soul first and then look for a body to put it in god makes the body and then animates it that's what we see with the creation of adam in genesis 2 mm -hmm. so i think I, I i would be hesitant to say that we are souls trapped in bodies um i think a biblical anthropology is more nuanced than that we are body spirit composites uh we're, mm -hmm. we're meant to be integrated um and so i can't simply say well my soul feels out of place in my body therefore my body's wrong and my soul is right mm -hmm. um, because the, the bible says that actually god created us male and female with all the complexities and and ambiguities that can sometimes involve um but it also says our, our minds and our hearts have become darkened through sin and so our our capacity to fully understand who we are is really quite limited um the, the best way to understand who we are rather than looking deep inside our our own hearts is to is to meet the one who made us the one who came up with the idea of us in the first place um which i think is a healthier way forwards on some of these issues than than some of the ways our, our culture is trying to deal with it today what is the church and i want to um you know kind of wrap up here but what does the church need to do or what is the church getting wrong with how it's dealing with homosexuality and transgenderism and all of the sort of sexual identity issues yeah i, th I think a, a variety of, the, of, of things depending on which which part of the church we find ourselves in some parts of the church just don't talk about it at all mm -hmm. um particularly churches in more secular contexts where it feels risky to say anything, mm -hmm. um, silence isn't kind. And if there are things from a Christian point of view that, that the Bible says, then those are going to be things that will bless us and we, we need to know them and, and understand them. Um, I think in other parts of, of the church, particularly here in, the, in America, there's a lot of negative rhetoric around issues of sexuality and gender identity that that sort of single it out. Um, and it, it's very easy to rail against the sins of a minority rather than the sins of the majority. Mm. Um, so I think we need both clarity and compassion, um, a biblical sense of proportion and, and balance about these things. And more important, perhaps even than those things, is that we have vibrant, healthy, obvious biblical community because if we're not providing healthy forms of, of intimacy, community, friendship, uh, family within our churches, then people are not going to be helped out of looking for unhealthy forms of, of intimacy and, and community. So there is, a, there is a responsibility not just to be those who are, are speaking biblical truth into this, but those who are embodying it in a way that that then shows people that actually there's there's relational richness to be found within the people of god that we might not find outside of it um that that i think is one of the key things well wonderful um sam albury thank you so much for being on lighthouse faith podcast i've really enjoyed the conversation it's my pleasure thanks thanks for having me um how can people find out more about you and your books well my books are on are on amazon uh I, I do have a website that I've now just realized is out of date. Um, so Amazon is probably the best place to look. And I'm, I'm found at Emmanuel Church in Nashville. So a lot of my, my teaching is, is there as well.
Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Amazon Prime members can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music app, or just hit the follow button on your favorite podcast player. I want to thank you so much again for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. My name is Lauren Green, and have a blast. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.